Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, happy Father's Day to you all. I'm so excited. We are starting a new series today that's entitled Road Trip Playlist. Road Trip Playlist. And there's nothing quite like a road trip with the family, is there? I mean, the planning, the packing, the tears that go into it. (laughs) You know, in our family, it's usually my wife Kelly's role to make sure that all of the bags are packed with the right things in them. And it's my role to make sure that they all fit into the van. Her role is like wrestling, wrestling a wet eel, trying to get the kids to actually focus on what needs to go into the suitcase. And my role is a little bit like Tetris, trying to make things fit. But once we get on the road, inevitably there is what I call the request for the, the sniper pit stop. And it usually comes from the back seat, and it's usually from my youngest son. And he says, I need to go to the bathroom. And here's what he doesn't mean. What he doesn't mean is, hey, in the next half hour or hour, if you see fit to find a place to go to the restroom, I would like to take that opportunity. What he actually means is, we need to find a place for me to go to the bathroom within the next 30 seconds, or there's going to be a wet cleanup on aisle three. That's what he means. That's what he means. And so this is sort of how we go about our trip. And this year, we're throwing a dog into the mix just to make it more fun. I'll I'll report back on how that goes. As a kid, I can remember packing up to go on road trips, going from Colorado where we were living to California to see our extended family and to spend some time at the beach. And I can remember my dad going over to the place where we stored our cassette tapes. And he would get out this little um, packet with a zipper in it and start to put tapes in there that would be part of our soundtrack that would lead us from Colorado to California. I can remember debating, are we going to bring Neil Diamond's Hot August Nights or are we going to bring Simon and Garfunkel, right? I mean, that was a big debate. But one thing we didn't debate was whether or not we were going to bring Stephen Curtis Chapman's album, The Great Adventure. Because that was an album we always brought every single time. In fact, it was the first album that we'd play and it launched us onto our road trip. And what I want you to do is just imagine yourself right now sitting in a maroon colored 1989 Dodge Grand Caravan. Packed to the gills, ready to go to California, pulling out of town. soundtrack and we would sing saddle up your horses we've got a trail to blaze isn't it interesting how music has the ability to just take you back 
like a time travel portal to just put you right back in a moment. I mean, the CDs and albums you listened to in high school, that just sort of takes you back to that moment in time. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying songs and poems that served as the road trip playlist for the Hebrew people. They're a collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. And in many ways, these psalms were likely used uh, in one of two ways. They were um, used by the Levites as they would walk up the steps to the temple. There were 15 steps that led up to the temple, and there are 15 psalms. They would read one along each step. But the most prominent way this collection of psalms was used was along the road to Jerusalem. See, for the Hebrew people, they made three pilgrim feasts every single year. They would travel to Jerusalem for Passover in the spring. They'd travel to Jerusalem for Pentecost in the early summer. And they would travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. In fact, we know that Jesus' family actually took these pilgrim voyages. Listen to the way that Luke talked about it in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. He said, now his parents, speaking of Jesus, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of of Passover. So here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine Jesus singing these songs as he traveled that dusty road 90 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the highest city in the region. So traveling there meant ascending regardless of where you were coming from. These songs, they they served the people of Israel as a melodic soundtrack, not just for the voyage from home to Jerusalem, but also for the inner journey of the soul. In in many ways, that's what poetry is designed to do. It's designed to invite us on a journey. It's designed to interrupt, to make us think, is that the way that life really works. See, these pilgrims weren't just going to Jerusalem in order to check off a religious to-do box. They were going to Jerusalem to become the kind of people who lived in the peace of Jerusalem. They were seeking God. They were longing to meet with God and to be transformed by him. I love the way that the prophet Isaiah put it when he said this, In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, this is the message paraphrase. He said, come, let's climb God's mountain. Go to the house of the God of Jacob, or go to the temple. He'll show us the way he works so we can live the way we're made. Isn't that a beautiful picture of why you would go to the house of the Lord? So you can see the way that God works. So you can learn truth about God. But not just to know it objectively, but to be transformed by it. So that we can live in the way that we are made. I think Eugene Peterson captured it so well in his great book entitled Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He wrote this. He said, but the ascent was not only literal, it was also a metaphor. The trip to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward toward God, an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity. What Paul describes as the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Christ Jesus. And in so many ways, these 
poems, this collection of songs express amazing grace and they seek to quiet our anxious fears that often start bubbling up as we walk through the painful parts of life. And in so many ways, our lives are lived in, in, our, in our home, in the places that we plant our feet. And yet there's an invitation in these psalms to become sojourners. To become pilgrims, as it were. See, a pilgrimage is different than a regular trip. They look the same from the outside, but inwardly they are distinct and different. See, inwardly a pilgrimage is driven by a thirst for God. It's the reason that in the scriptures, we, we as followers of Jesus are described as pilgrims, as sojourners, as exiles. We hold in tension the reality that this is where our feet are planted, and yet this is not our home. And so Emmanuel Faith, this summer, I am calling you to pilgrimage I'm calling you to, to saddle up your horses because we've got a trail to blaze. It's a trail of discipleship and of transformation. But I've got to warn you, just like many modern day road trips, this journey of discipleship and of transformation is wrought with struggle and switchbacks and detours and flat tires and unexpected pit stops along the way. It is not simply an up-and-to-the-right endeavor. No, these poems and these songs are grounded in the lives of real people, which means they're a bit messy. And yet, they give language to the journey that Jesus is inviting us on today. If you have your Bible, will you open with me to Psalm 120, the first in the Psalms of Ascent. And listen to this psalm that launches us on our journey. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me. That I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, I think that pretty much clears it up. If you read the psalm and you go, gosh, there's some tension here. There's some unmet expectations. There's some hopes that have been maybe dashed for a time. You are reading it right. This is sort of a vent poem with a redemptive twist. I mean, notice that the poem is written in first person. I feel this. Me. I'm walking through it. And as a church that loves the scriptures, and I say yes and amen to that, we love to dive in and we love to exegete and what does this word mean and how does it connect to that word. And over the next few weeks, we're certainly going to exegete the scriptures. But more than that, the Psalms want us to enter in. They want us to experience. They want us to hear and read and go, I felt that. I I've, I've been there. I think I'm on that journey in some way. They want us to feel what the author felt. 
In order to do that, listen again to verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, In my distress, I called out to the Lord. He answered me, Deliver me, O God, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. This word distress in the Hebrew means to feel like you're in a narrow or confined space. Have you ever felt like your world was getting smaller? Like the walls were caving in a little bit? Or what used to feel like home doesn't quite feel like home? And then he tells us why he feels that way. He said, oh, there are lying lips and there is a deceitful tongue. This word deceitful literally means to fire off. So the psalmist is saying, I feel like I'm on a firing line and the ammunition or the weapon that's being used against me are people are lying, they're slandering about me, and they're launching gossip as grenades in my direction. And it feels like my world is caving in, and it feels like I am on the firing line. He is crippled with a sickness that is being given to him by all the people around him who are against him. Now, we don't know exactly who wrote the psalm, and we don't ex- know exactly the situation that he's referring to. And I think that's intentional, so that we can read it and go, been there. Been there. I've sensed that pain, that kind of hurt that comes from the lips of others. I- I've experienced those wounds. Yeah, we understand this, don't we? I mean, we live in a culture of deceit. How many of you, at one point over the last year and a half, have thrown your hands up in the air and said, I just want to know what's true? I mean, if I watch one news outlet, one thing is true. If I watch another, another thing is true. I just want to know the truth. I mean, there's a reason that websites like Snopes and other fact-checking websites exist. Right? Because lies have a tendency to spread like wildfire. I mean, I did a little bit of research just to find out what are some of the most prominent lies that have been generally accepted as truth. Did you know that there was a lie about Mr. Rogers that spread? Mr. Rogers! Oh my goodness. The reason he wore those sweaters was to cover up, did anybody hear this? Tattoos on his arm! Mr. Rogers! I mean, then there are others, you know, like um, that Elvis Presley is still alive. I heard this one on uh, the playground at my grade school that Michael J. Fox, that the J, his middle name, actually stood for. Did anybody else hear this one? Jello? Michael Jello Fox is his name. And it was just widely accepted. Jay Z, a part of the Illuminati, obviously. Okay? And we, we get there, don't we? I just want to know the truth. But here's the reality. Not being able to discern the truth is frustrating. But having untruth spoken about you is devastating. If you've had it happen, you know that feeling of a, of a word shared at a prayer meeting. <laughs> Under the guise of we just need to pray for so-and-so, they're really struggling. Or a word spoken at a 
water cooler at work that just starts to erode your reputation or a whisper in the ear of somebody who's a person of influence and power. And then you start to get the sense that the atmosphere changes every time you walk into the room. And you're distressed. The world feels like it's sort of crawling in on you because you know if you try to defend yourself, you only start to perpetuate what's been told and maybe at best seem paranoid. Yeah, the, that pain is real and it can affect our relationships with everybody around us, but also our relationship with God. So here's the question. What do we do with that pain? What do we do with those words that turn into wounds? See, this dissatisfaction and discontent are often the things that launch us into the pilgrim journey. See, that visceral sense of this isn't how life is supposed to be. That acknowledgement, this isn't true, and yet it's creating a cage for me to live in, is often the inciting incident that launches us out to seek for more. I love the way that Augustine of Hippo put it. He said, oh God, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It's this restlessness that often launches us out to go on those proverbial, metaphorical, dusty roads leading from Nazareth up to Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down that holy haunting or that divinely inspired discontent that end of my rope frustration and distress that distress is a great reason to pursue God but a terrible reason to abandon him a great reason to pursue God and it's a terrible reason to abandon him and isn't it true friends and you've probably seen this in your own life that discontent because of the wounds of the world can either ground us in that pain and it can be like an anchor for our soul that we can't seem to grow beyond regardless of how hard we try or it can launch us into the journey longing for the world of grace, of something different, of something better, of something more. So here's my question. Here's our question. How do we allow that pain to launch us on pilgrimage instead of letting it be an anchor that keeps us where we are. Here's what the psalmist says. He says, in my distress, say this with me, church, I called, I called to the Lord and he answered me. What does he do? And all these words that are flying at him in this world that feels like it's getting smaller, what does he do? He prays. And if you've ever sensed this pain, and maybe you're even carrying these wounds right now, or wounds from something else, this is a great thing to do, to make prayer your first response rather than your last resort. The first thing that you do, go to God. But oftentimes we're embarrassed, aren't we? And it's easier to just want to keep things hidden, even from God. We want to put that distress in a box, lock it up, and throw away the key, don't we? And as understandable as it is to want to keep deceit as a secret, that very act can often make it worse. 
can make it grow. So if we're going to be healthy and whole human beings living in the midst of a broken world, we have to go first to God and deal with him rather than going first to everybody else. I love the way that Peter wrote the same thing to the church. He said this. He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And Peter, in this one little passage, describes for us two reasons that we often want to hold on to our pain rather than pray our pain. And the first is pride, which is why he says, humble yourself. Humble yourselves. See, in pride, we go, oh, I can work this out. I I can make it through. I can write the ship. I can, make a, I can have conversations with all those people that were told lies about me, and I, I, can, I can make it all right. I can, I, I can do it. And it's in pride that we usually say, I'm going to hold on to this. Here's a second thing we wrestle with, and I think this is so poignant on Father's Day because so many people carry father wounds, and we impose those wounds back on God also. And here's our question. God, can I trust you? God, are you good? God, if I hand this over to you, are you going to turn it back on me? And so Peter says, no, no, no. You can cast your anxiety, your pain, your care on him because he, what? He cares for you. He cares for you. And so you might be wondering, okay, well, where's the line? Like, how much can I tell God? How much is safe to bring To God. There's got to be some sort of filter, some sort of limit, right? Well, let's just keep reading. Look at what the psalmist brings to God. He says this, What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? So now he shifts from talking just to God to talking sort of illustratively to the people who have wounded him also. What should be done to you? And then he goes, ah, I've got ideas. How about... A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, there's multiple metaphors going on with the broom tree, but one of them is if you read through the scriptures and look at everywhere you find a broom tree. One, broom trees grew in the desert, and so people would often try to find shade in the desert underneath a broom tree. And if you're trying to find shade in the desert, you're in a tough spot. Amen? And so people often experienced great sorrow underneath broom trees. Uh, This is the place that Hagar hid out after she was kicked out of Abraham and Sarah's home. She's under a broom tree when God sees her. But the second thing you have to know about a broom tree is that it burns really hot. And so the coals of a broom tree were known to be some of the hottest burning coals in the ancient world. So what is the psalmist saying? He's like, what should be done to these people that are telling lies about me and making my world cave in? Hey God, I've got some ideas for you. How about we shoot them with arrows that are on fire, not just with any tree, but with a broom tree? How do you feel about that, God? Oh, wait, right? We have modern day songs like this also. Songs that get out in the open and once we look at them we go, ooh, that's a little bit harsh, isn't it? Uh, I'll admit something to you guys, since we're all friends, okay? I enjoy country music. (laughs) I do. 
A little bit of twang in my life. Don't judge me. I enjoy it. There's one song on the country music station that we listen to in the car that I will change every single time it comes on. But not before I heard it a few times and started to hear what it was actually about. It's a, by a woman named Gabby Barrett, and it's entitled, I Hope He Cheats. Listen to the chorus of the song. She's writing about her ex, and this is what she says to him. I hope you spend the last, your last dime to put a rock on her hand. I hope she's wilder than your wildest dreams. I hope she's everything you're ever going to need. And then I hope she cheats like you did on me. I hope she cheats like you did on me. Feel that pain that you hurt me and now I'd love for you to be paid back. How about some burning coals from a broom tree, right? This isn't the only area, this isn't the only time where we find this in the scriptures, friends. I mean, listen to this. This is a Psalm of David, a Psalm by a man after God's own heart. And listen to what he says in Psalm 58, verse six. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, oh Lord. I mean, I have yet to find this on a coffee mug, friends. <laughs> Anybody wanna say I've got that tattoo on my back, right? And no, I mean, if somebody bows their head in your life group and you're going around praying and they're like, Lord, what I'd really like is for you to break the teeth in Steve's mouth. That's what I'd like. I mean, you would all pop up and look at each other while he was still praying and you'd go, let's take a collection. We need to get him to a therapist like right now, ASAP, before something goes wrong. There's a category of Psalms that follow this type of a pattern. They're called imprecatory psalms. Which begs the question, I mean, I know we're not supposed to have a thirst for vengeance. But what do we do when we have a thirst for vengeance? I know we're not supposed to be angry, but what do we do when we're angry? I think we have three options. One, we can act out on it. Start taking archery lessons, right? Put up our, our, our fists or even just start spewing our own words. I'll get you back. Say that about me. Or, and, and this is an overgeneralization, I know, but since it's Father's Day, I think this is a tactic that men often use, and it's, we're just going to bury it. Let's not talk about it. Let's pretend it's not there. And I'm sure eventually that burning in my soul will go away. Here's a problem with that. When we try to bury it, it never stays buried. And it usually squirts out on people that weren't a part of the problem and on people that we love the most. And here's a third option. We can take all of that anger and all of that frustration and all of that bitterness and we can pray it back to God. And I think that's what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 120. It's part confession, God, here's what's in me. And it's part excavation, digging it up. And it's part release, God, it's yours. God, it's yours. 
And that's the invitation to be people who sojourn, to become transformed, the kind of people who look like Jesus, who love Jesus, who live in his way, with his heart. We have got to release anger rather than carrying bitterness. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. It's also what, the, what Paul wrote to the church at Rome and encouraged them to do. He said, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But there's something that happens in us when we don't release it back to God. It starts to shape our lives. It starts to control our lives. I think it was Pastor Josh Moody who captured it so well when he said, what happens when someone hurts you is only half the cruelty. The real danger is that you'll become someone like that and start to hurt other people in turn. That vicious cycle is the standard pattern, whether verbal or physical abuse, unless the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ intervene, as they do here in this psalm. I don't know what Jesus is saying to you today, but I, I get the sense that there's some people in this room who just need to hear that. You've been carrying bitterness and anger for far too long. You know that old, ang that old adage that um, carrying bitterness and anger is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. And maybe today Jesus is inviting you to just release it. See, here's what's true. Even if your anger is justified, it's never helpful. No one's ever said, really glad I carried that anger for so long. Because it really made me a better fill in the blank. No one said, oh, my anger made me a better dad, maybe a better mom, maybe a better husband, maybe a better grandma or grandpa, maybe a better student, maybe a better athlete. Nobody has said, my anger actually made me better. And here's the truth, friends. If you don't find a way to pray it back to God and to hand it over to him. The scriptures say that you actually give the devil a foothold in your life. Like a place for him to get his foot in and then start to climb around everywhere else. If you want to go to battle for the health of your soul, learn to forgive. Choose to let go of anger, even when you're right. Pray it back to God to refuse to let, as the scriptures call us to, refuse to let a root of bitterness to grow up in our life. See, see, this psalm teaches us that there's something cathartic, something healing that happens when we give our wounds back to God and we trust him with the outcome. Now, sometimes poems or songs feel a little bit trite, uh, overly triumphalistic, like I prayed and then God changed everything immediately. Woo! Praise God, right? And we all know that that's not always the way life works. Can I get an amen? Sometimes it does, but oftentimes it's more of a journey. Woe to me, he says, that I sojourn, that, that's that pilgrimage, voyage word, in Meshech, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
Uh, most scholars think that he's using these terms, Kadesh and, um, sorry, Meshach and Kadar. If you want to combine those, call it Meshdar. Um, as metaphors, because they're over a thousand miles apart. He probably hasn't lived in both of those places, but both of those places were known as strongholds for Gentiles. Places that people like the psalmist, who are worshipers of Yahweh, would have gotten pushback, would have received words of condemnation for believing in a covenantal, good, loving, monotheistic God. And so he's using these as a, as a picture to say sometimes it feels like your home is in a place where there's just wounds and words coming at you on every side. And some of you, you may work in Meshech. You, you may have your home or your marriage in Kadar. But one of the things I love about this psalm is the way that it comes to a resolution without us Assuming or thinking that he lives in a different world than we inhabit. Because at the very end of this psalm, it says, I am for peace, but they are for what? War. And you see that there's this internal fortitude that he has now to step back into the world that he lives in, even if it's not the world he longs for. He has been changed by his prayers, even though his prayers haven't changed his outside circumstances yet. He's going, this is my choice. This is who I am. This is where I'm going to live. This is the voyage I'm on, the pilgrimage I'm on, to choose internal peace even amidst external chaos. You know, I think the psalmist is saying, I am no longer defined by what's said about me. That's no longer how I shape my identity. I think he's saying, I know I cannot control the actions of others, but God, I can control my own actions and my own attitude. I think he's saying, I am going to choose to be in, in, in charge of my response, not theirs. And I think he's saying, I'm giving up the right to play judge, jury, <laughs> and executioner all rolled into one. He says in the Hebrew, uh, in English, it says, I am for peace. In the Hebrew, it's literally, I peace. I peace. And I love this picture because you have to imagine these pilgrims going along this road. They've just left their hometown. They're on this dusty path leading towards Jerusalem, which literally means, anybody know? City of, just guess, peace. City of peace. And what these pilgrims are saying, I don't want it to just be true of our physical journey. I want it to be true of our spiritual journey also, of our soul, that we would have this settled trust in God's fatherly care and a steady refusal to give in to anger and anxiety and anything else that would try to get its fangs into our soul. But remember, in fact, could you look up at me for just a moment? This is a journey. This is a journey. And that release doesn't normally happen in a one-time shot and it doesn't usually happen overnight. I can imagine the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem saying, let's sing 120 again. God, I 
and for peace. But it is a journey that begins with a step and then another step and then another decision to continue to let go of the weight and wounds of the words of other people and to say, no, God, I'm going to pray this back to you. And God, I'm going to confess to you and I'm going to release it to you, trusting that you're a good God and that you will do as you see fit. And then I'm going to choose internal peace regardless of the outside circumstances that surround me. You know, yesterday we celebrated the now national holiday of Juneteenth. It was on June 19th, 1865, that a Union general rode into Galveston, Texas to announce that the Civil War had ended and that the slaves had been freed. The Emancipation Proclamation, however, had been given over two years previous. Word just hadn't reached Galveston, Texas, and the 250,000 slaves there at the time. There was a gap in between the declaration of freedom and the realization of that freedom. And I think maybe for some today, that this would be a spiritual Juneteenth for us in a sense. To say, God, there's something that you've done for us. That on the cross, you have forgiven us. On the cross, you have called us your own. You have made us holy. God, through your death and resurrection, you call us your children. And we are invited to call out to you, Abba, Father. And in doing so, we can dig all of the dirt and all of the darkness and all of the evil out of our lives and lay it before your throne of grace, trusting that you are a good God and you will do with it as you see fit. And then we are invited to walk in freedom and peace and shalom. And so here's my question for you today. Is there something that you're carrying that Jesus is inviting you to leave on the dusty side of the road as we journey towards Jerusalem to become people of peace? And that's my prayer for us, is that we would choose to journey with Jesus to his land of peace. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to you as aliens, as strangers, as sojourners, as pilgrims. I love that image, Jesus, because it just affirms the truth that we're people who are messy and in progress. And Lord, I'm grateful that you love us exactly as we are. Would you help us to be people who choose peace, who can say, I peace. And Lord, I pray over every father in this room as the head of their household, would they be people who say as a family, this is the journey that we're gonna go on. We're gonna let go of anger and anxiety and bitterness and we're gonna pursue you, the God who ties up our loose ends and who heals our wounds. We're gonna take that pilgrimage to your presence to meet with you and to be known by you. Father, for every father in this room, would you help them, help us, help me choose that first and then help us lead our families in that way. 
as well. Lord, I pray that over the course of these next few weeks, as we study these songs and these poems, that you would help us to confidently say, we're people who are choosing peace. So help us let go of whatever we're carrying that might prevent us from doing that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.